Welcome to Percussion Perspectives, a podcast by Henrik Knabor Larsen and Håkon Stene. Each episode features one or more musical artists in conversation about musical education, their practice and aesthetic and sociological perspectives. Hello and welcome to our podcast series called Percussion Perspectives. This is in fact our first episode of hopefully many that will feature professional artists, performers, researchers and teachers, primarily from the field of music, talking about their way into their profession, their different experiences, as well as ongoing and future projects. Our idea with this series is to reach out to music students and young professionals who wish to gain more insight into the minds of established artists, teachers and researchers in order to learn more about what it takes to establish an independent professional artistic practice. Our first episode features Australian musician Eugene Ugetti, the artistic director of Speak Percussion Ensemble in Melbourne. In addition to being the director of Speak, Eugene is a performer within an extended field of percussion practices. He's a composer, a conductor, a producer, and a curator. Eugene regularly performs throughout Europe, Asia, North America, and Australia within a wide variety of contexts. Eugene has instigated numerous international art projects involving Australian chamber music, cross-art collaborations, commissioning international artists and taking other Australian artists overseas. He has commissioned over 70 new compositions and has undertaken professional collaborations with choreographers, animators, dancers, installation artists, actors, instrument builders, artistic directors and has commissioned over 40 new solo and ensemble works. In our chat, which took place in April 2021, Eugene talked about his development from being a young music student to curating and developing multidisciplinary artworks for, in my own opinion, one of the most interesting new music ensembles of our time. And so with this, we bring you Eugene Ugetti. Thanks for having me, Hocken. It's great to, always great to see you and chat to you. Um, so how did it start? Well, my dad was a drummer and uh, I never thought to play music. I was always fascinated by sound. I remember loving thunderstorms and, um, you know, I used to do all kinds of experiments, blocking my ears in bed as a, as a four or five-year-old. I remember that well. But it was actually Santa Claus that decided that I would be a drummer. So one year, I just turned six. The practice pad and drumsticks arrived under the Christmas tree. And that was the beginning. I, as soon as I opened the present, it was like, great idea. What a really good idea. I'd never thought of it before. And I guess I was lucky in the sense that my parents never questioned me being a musician. And I had a good foundation in the sense that my dad was a drummer and he owned a music store. And my mother was a visual artist. and She had a studio at home. So, you know, the worst manifestation of that, <laughs> actually not worst, but maybe, maybe the most um, 
Beautiful. Outcome of that was when at one point in my career, I think I was about 20 or something, I was working with glass percussion instruments because my mum was a visual artist and she'd worked a lot with glass around that time. So it was like the, that was the perfect offspring of my two parents. But essentially my dad, he was my first drum teacher. And, and then it wasn't until my early teens that I moved to um, higher level teachers and, um, and I think, you know, the early years, aside from learning, it was very technically based, my lessons with my dad. Uh, he was sort of more or less passed down through the Buddy Rich kind of method, leading with the left hand, traditional grip, kind of a lot of pad work. And um, so not in a, in a very inspiring, not inspiring in terms of music, but a great foundation as a starting point. And um, I think... So it means that that music is, is not so important for you today? Well, music is, has always been important to me, but I don't think I was playing music as a drummer for a long time. It was, it was just technique. So it, it, it wasn't music. It was actually something different. It was more like a martial art or some kind of uh, weird, um, you know, cracking nuts or something in the back. In the back. <laughs> it was a weird thing. And I guess as a kid, you don't really distinguish. Like you don't even really know what music is at that age. Um, but, you know, a very distinct experience for me was um, I had to basically earn my drum kit. Um, and so I had the pad and sticks. And the first thing I earned was, was a snare drum, an acoustic instrument. And then the second thing I earned was a ride cymbal after, you know, months of practice. And I remember my dad, he set the cymbal up and the snare drum in the room for the first time. And he played me this kind of like... It, it was either a swing groove or a rock groove or something. And I started to weep. I just broke down. And like my dad, it was just, you know, it was very casual for him. He set it up and just kind of gave it a little demo. And uh, my mum was in the room as well. I remember that. And he just sort of played for me. And I think it was actually the first time he'd played music for me. But it was also this, I just kind of earned it too. And it was just, it was a very overwhelming experience. I think maybe that says something about why music did become a big, deep love and a passion. What was in the, uh, the, the record collection at home, though, that you still connect to? Well, my dad, he's, he was very passionate about Mexican music, would you believe? Um, so, um, and kind of like Mexican folk, Mexican, you know, pop, not the mariachi kind of stuff, but more the kind of like, you know, um, guitar ensemble with four voice harmony kind of stuff, which, which is beautiful stuff. Um, And so that was really popular at home. Um, a lot of like, you know, uh, continental music, I guess you'd call it like European music, um, almost like that kind of Northern Italian, Southern German kind of stuff, um, which my dad used to play. And um, my mum was into really into like sort of pop of the day. And her stars were like people like um, Elton John and, you know, Neil Diamond and some mid 70s uh, pop kind of thing, late 70s. Exactly. Yeah. Are, are, are you half Italian or something? Your name has yeah. an Italian ring to it. Yeah. So my yeah. dad was born in Italy and he migrated to Australia when he was seven. Um, but there's still a strong sort of cultural feeling in the family connection back to Italy. But he actually where he was born is now former Yugoslavia. So it, it was Italy when he was born there, but it's very much a border town. In fact, it's now Croatia. So um, it's, uh, you know, I think I've got some Austrian and Czech family back on that side as well so it's italian but it's very slavic and you know right. mixed and do you speak italian did you speak italian at home i did well actually with my with my nonna 
so she babysat me a lot, but um, not, not with my dad. He was, it was all English. And then um, tell me about how you decided to study music and where that kind of led you. What people did you meet? Um, what, what were the choices taken then? Yeah, so it was by the, I think maybe 12 or so, I started to play like classical percussion. I'd always read a little bit and I'd played in some symphonic bands, concert bands and things, but it wasn't until I started really, you know, looking at keyboard percussion And I got into the Melbourne Youth Orchestra when I was 14. And that was the turning point. I think I encountered, we had, an, like the first program was like Daphnis and Chloe of Ravel and Hindemith Symphonic Metamorphosis and, you know, Adding 12 Overture of Tchaikovsky. Quite serious repertoire for a 14-year-old. And um, that opened my eyes dramatically. And um, particularly the Ravel um, and the Hindemith, actually, both those pieces I loved and still love today. Yeah, they're amazing. They're incredible pieces. And I think to me, I, at that age, I realized, you know, pu there was middle of puberty, a very formative time for, for anyone. But I think being like at that sort of the height of my pubescent or at the beginning of puberty and encountering interesting classical music at that time as a musician was like, aha, this could actually be, I, can, I could see at that moment a lifetime of, of um of study i could see that a lifetime wouldn't be enough to exhaust the pursuit so that was a really powerful uh, vision i think at that time and that's totally where it went from there i was already composing a little bit and i was already i'd played bass guitar as well so i was i had played in rock bands and metal bands and um you know i'd played big band and so i'd had a fairly broad experience of work but i think the the classical music that art music world drew me in. At that uh, early age already. So you, you were um, more attracted to the classical scene than the actual popular music scene or rock metal scene, as it were. Yeah, yeah. definitely. I was still listening to some other, other work, but I started to get very sort of obsessive about, you know, early 20th century music, basically, like Shostakovich and Stravinsky. And I used to spend all my money, like, buying scores and buying recordings and... And, you know, got really, really into that, buying tambourines and all that sort of thing. Super interesting. And then <laughs> you um, did an audition somewhere and you entered university. Yeah. So I went to a specialist high school for a couple of years that's attached to the university. It's called the Victorian College of the Arts Secondary School. Half the day was dedicated to music and the other half of the day was just normal academic studies. Uh, that was great. So lots of practice and lots of great experiences. And then university, I did all of my formal university training here at the Victorian College of the Arts, which is part of the University of Melbourne. I had lots of different teachers, but the most important ones were really from a young age. It was John Acaro, who was in the Melbourne Symphony. And to, to this day, we're still very close. Um, and, and Peter Neville was the head of percussion and he was sort of more my teacher in my latter years, but always a mentor and someone I worked with a lot um, outside of university. Do you still hold this music uh, dear? I mean, um, you went on to create a kind of art organization that was more experimental. What meaning does classical music still have in your life today as a concert goer or just a cultural, cultural consumer? Well, it was, I think from the age of 14, it was in constant growth from there. So even by the time I hit university, I'd already, in a sense, moved on from, from classical music. I, I, I mean, it was always part of the, that lineage to some degree, but already by, by the first year of university, I was very much interested in new music and I was pursuing 
contemporary, like new works, collaborations with composers, and in particular, more chamber music than orchestral music, which I guess goes hand in hand with new music to some degree. Um, and then by the time I'd left university, it was by that stage already multidisciplinary projects. So it was still, you know, art music to some degree, but but commissioning works and collaborating with other art forms. So very quickly, you know, over those 10 years, I guess, from 14 to mid-20s, it evolved a long way away. But I still have a love for that music. I think that my problem, my problem ultimately was, if I can say this without being too controversial, is what, what really annoyed me about orchestral music and orchestral culture, orchestral culture, I should say, is that there's a lot of, like, quite radical music across the ages, even, even romantic, you know, wherever you want to look, there's some quite radical and vibrant music. And I found the attitude and the energy and the risks being taken by musicians that played that music to be the kind of opposite. And what I hated was that we were making music of, you know, you know, Berlioz or these kind of quite radical composers. And yet there was a certain way to do it. And it was this very, very conservative thing. And to me, that just didn't make any sense. It's like Beethoven, he was a radical composer. His music is, it's abrasive, it's shocking, and it's exciting music. If that isn't living and breathing within the process of making that work, then, then it's a failure if, in, in, in my sense. So, for, so in many respects, it was the culture, the culture surrounding that music that, that let me down um, as much as anything else. Um, but I, I mean, I still, I still listen to it a bit. Are you still bothered by the kind of conservative culture surrounding concert house uh, musical presentation? Very, yeah. con very concerned by it. Yeah, because it's um, it's an incredibly rich and beautiful tradition, but um, it it unfortunately has um, gotten completely left behind. You know the orchestral scenes. I can think of very few orchestras anywhere in the world that have actually managed to keep up with, you know, the 21st century in terms of what you know young people, and not even just young people, people my age, you know, want want to experience. You know, we want something much more dynamic, much richer. Um, we want we want to, yeah. And I think that unfortunately, um, that whole world, the concert music world in general, has has really struggled. Mm. So Eugene, what are your thoughts about um, when you create something like Speak? Um, what is the connection there to uh, the tradition of classical music, if any, when you uh, communicate your your um, your projects, like whether on stage or on uh, on internet or on albums? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I mean, I think a lot of it is in the training and the way of thinking. So uh, you know, a big uh, uh, something that I've feel I've been blessed to bring is, uh, is a discipline um, and, uh, you know, like facility on, on a range of percussion instruments. Um, and I think that through learning one's craft, you're also developing your ear. And that's a super important thing, you know, in terms of speak percussion, I'm, edit I'm constantly editing audio, I'm running rehearsals, I'm evaluating the quality of composers' works through MP3 files or through live performances. So, Developing the ear is a really important part of that. Um, but as I mentioned before, I think it is it was one big natural progression. And I think for me, I'd realized that the art of percussion was a broad enough world for me to exist in comfortably. Um, and in fact, the, the more I've, the deeper I've gone in, 
the richer and the more um, multifarious that world has become. You know, if we think about percussion, the art of percussion, it's it's also instrument building, it's installation, it's um, of course commissioning works, it's playing any physical object in existence. There is there are no physical boundaries to what a percussion instrument can be. A violin can be a percussion instrument. You know, we can have it all. And then beyond that, suddenly we're in the world of design. We're in the world of, you know, production. And whether you want to or not, you're in kind of a a choreographic space. You're in a um, a place of object theatre. And so to me, percussion is such a fantastic lens through which to project a very broad sense of what a creative practice can be. And that's what speak percussion has become really is, is, is the sort of a really very broad, but at the same time, highly experimental look at what the art form of percussion can be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and take us to that process. How did your um, artistic visions look 20 years ago, as opposed to what it has become now, more of a kind of performance group, perhaps what format were you then? Were you a quartet or a fixed size ensemble? When we started, we were a quintet. And, um, yeah, the first few years were, were really um, so many things happened. We were all students. And gradually by the end of those first two years, most of us had graduated university and the realities of life kicked in. In other words, it was hard. Um, it was very, it was certainly not profitable to be in a percussion group. And um, we burnt out actually after two years. The whole group was exhausted. Um, and we, I remember we had a meeting and we just kind of went around the circle and it was basically like everybody said, I've had enough, I'm out. End of story, like, thanks. And, you know, we couldn't stand the sight of each other and we were also just absolutely sick of, it just seemed like a dead end. And I was the only one who said, look, I've had enough too, but I would only consider continuing if, you know, we made some really big changes, you know, to how this whole thing worked. And it was literally, you know, quite literally, I was the last person that had a glimmer of hope. Um, and at that point, changed the way the group made some decisions and said, right, okay, well, I will continue it and I will make those changes given that everybody's left. And the changes I made was that instead of it being an ensemble, I decided to turn it into more of a collective. So it became less about those same four people on stage. And then I thought, well, you know, why why don't we work with the best people for the pro- for the right project? You know, if we're doing this heavy mallet, heavy kind of thing that requires a lot of reading and extra special chops, then let's get the right players for that. If we're doing something that's more improvisatory, in those early years, we worked a lot with Fritz Hauser too. Um, and, you know, that requires a certain kind of musician, a certain sensibility and a, someone that can comfortably improvise. And so I was able to kind of choose who I thought were the best players to come and join the project. And we could be a duo, we could be a 12-tet, we could be a trio, depending on what the project needed. So artistic direction was um, became your role as well as being a musician. Yeah, that's right. And so um, talk us through, like, how did you go from that level of the, your, your kind of first initial ideas of a, a future vision for the ensemble then into building a kind of an organization with, with, with funding and how did you go, how do you, does one go about uh, practically in Australia to have that coming? Yeah. Well, early on the funding thing was a, was a reality. So we were able to apply within the first couple of years, we managed to secure a little bit of sort of money for emerging artists 
to help support projects. It was a small amount of money, but, but it helped a lot. And it was very much a sort of step-by-step process of kind of climbing the ladder. Um, I think one of the best lessons I learned really was when um, programming work was, you know, all of, the, all of the projects were done out of my personal bank account. And I'm talking about being like a 20-year-old, 21-year-old boy still living with his parents. Um, I only had a few thousand dollars to my name, you know, at that age. So if we booked a hall that cost a lot of money and we had box office and I had artist fees to pay, I couldn't afford to A, for the program to suck and that no one would come. And B, I couldn't afford to overspend on some luxury item, you know, the, the, the five octave marimba instead of the four and a half just because it sounds better or something. So I had to really make it work on a financial level. And I think starting like that, rather than it just being all handed, was a really good lesson because it also made me be think really hard about like, okay, well, is this program good enough to actually really sell tickets? And so marketing was part of the thinking. And, you know, the broader, aside from being an artistic director, almost like a, um, a small business operator, really. Um, right. It, Where did you take inspiration from that, though? Because you, you don't learn that in the practice space uh, in the conservatory. No, you don't. I had to do it on the job. Our first, like even in our first debut concert, we had, we had to do radio interviews. We had to write a media release. We got picked up by one of the big concert presenters here and they were presenting some young ensembles and we, that, we were lucky. But they sort of coached us through some of those things for our first concert. And then after that, we just had to do it. I mean, they were back in the days where you would send out paper media releases, you know, and you would, you'd, you'd, there'd be a fax machine and, you know, at the top of the page, it would say media release, you know, like for immediate, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's yeah, very yeah. weird. Um, so, um, but yeah, so I learned all of that on the job, including how to write funding applications. And, you know, at a certain point, nine years in, it became clear that turning Speak Percussion into a small business from a small business into an organization was the right thing to do. And the reason for that was it meant that we could access much more serious funding here. And I think that would be common throughout the world. Right. And would you do, how would you describe the, the climate for making small art businesses, as it were, um, out of Australia? I talked to Russell Greenberg, as I mentioned yesterday, in New York. And that's kind of a, maybe a more brutal scene, uh, in a sense, in, in terms of public funding. It's more private-based, so, etc. How is the climate in... in, in in Australia in general or in Melbourne in particular? Look, I think it's, from my experience of traveling the world, I think it's good here. Um, I wouldn't, it's certainly not um, the best in the world. Um, I can name a few countries that I think are probably the best, but it's, it's certainly, there's certainly really good funding for the arts in Australia. It's very competitive. Um, that's not a bad thing though, I think. Um, but on the other hand, it is also possible. I mean, now I have a full-time job. As, a, as the artistic director of Speak Percussion. That is my full-time job. I get holiday pay and, and sick leave. And, you know, it's, it's a very... I realise that that is an incredibly privileged position to be in. Um, it did take a long time to get there, but on the other hand, at least there was support to be had. Um, and I must say, importantly, in Australia growing up, we had an organisation role model that I could look to, which was Synergy Percussion. So they've been around for 45 years now. And particularly at that time, they were huge. They were performing all over the world. They'd commissioned lots of the great early Australian percussion ensemble repertoire. 
Um, and so I grew up seeing that that was possible as a career, that you could be in a percussion chamber music group, and that wasn't unusual. Right. And uh, also Elysian Ensemble was in Melbourne, right? Or is still with teacher Peter now? That's right. And, the, and they, all, they also toured extensively in those days. They did. They did. So there was a lot of new music going on in Melbourne. Elysian were one of the famous groups from the sort of 90s. They'd actually already left Melbourne by the time I really hit the scene. But their presence had been really felt. So, you know, Elysian Ensemble still exists today. They were sort of, I guess, famous for really pioneering new complexity in Australia. So they worked a lot with people like Brian Fernyhoe and um, Richard Barrett and composers of that, and Lisa Lim, of course, as well. Not that she's qu quite um, a new complexist. But that was kind of the world. So I, it, was, it was a great um, inspiration for me to see people that were pushing at the edge of... Uh, virtuosity um and that was also you know like i think mentally very stimulating and even conceptually you know talking to composers like richard barrett i met him i think when i was in my late teens and and just hearing him talk about these large-scale works that might go for three or four hours eclipsed a lot of the other kind of art music thinking that i'd understood until such a time right. Those that I, there was a piece called Dark Matter, which was uh, Elysian and Cicada, an ensemble based out of Oslo, and they I think they premiered that in Melbourne, late '90s. I remember this piece very well. Yeah, that's a kind of evening length, couple of hours. You remember yeah. this? Yeah, Dark Matter. Yeah, with a Norwegian uh, installation artist. <laughs> Switch to more the later years of uh, speak percussion. How you curate projects, how you develop um, new ideas, because you you you've come to the situation where you exclusively you design your own shows, your own programs. You, you, like you commission stuff exclusively for your group now, right? And so you're you're not very much depending on uh, the historical repertoire anymore. No, we haven't been for a long time. I'm guessing, which is a very very cool situation to be in, right? Artistically, that you kind of. You design things as you want them. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for the compliment. I mean, I, I think it's it's always felt like a, a kind of um, a a journey towards this place. It was never never clear that this is where we would come. But I think um, and I and I feel like you know I've, I've drawn a lot of inspiration from from you, Hocken, just looking at you know what you've written and what you've done in your your personal um, pursuits as an artist. And um, you know, a lot of that was also just moving away from the traditional instruments. So this, this notion of post-instrumental practice, which I know is a term that you coined, rings so true for what we do and believe. And um, it's, it really was about looking beyond those sorts of, you know, those important pillars of percussion and then starting to think about, well, what is an instrument and what is my relationship to that, to that instrument? And, also wanting to kind of um, 
not so much wipe the slate clean, but be free of the, the bounds of like, why talk about astrophysics on the marimba when you could, you know, use, you know, you could, you could have sound on, on multiple planets or you could talk, you could have, you, you, you know, you, the mind boggles in terms of what one could do to express that, that idea. And um, I think naturally... I felt a there was a sort of a push away from virtuosity because also the virtuosity, it wasn't about not wanting to practice hard. It was very much about, no, this is not about mental and muscular feats. The art shouldn't be about that. The art should be about something much deeper, some broader concept. And if the muscle and the and the sort of the the technical facility of the musician is on show, then everything else takes a backseat. And that was so. There was a there was a, a push away from virtuosity. We worked um, we worked with composers like Michael Pizarro performing his "A Wave and Waves" piece for a hundred percussionists, um, and even the music of Fritz Hauser, You know, very simple, generally. Um, but on top of the anti virtuosity thing was also this anti instrumentalism type of thing that we didn't want to be bound to the language of the vibraphone or the snare drum or or whatever. And so now, yeah, a lot of our projects, we're designing the instruments from scratch. We've got dramaturgs in the room early on, lighting designers, or, you know, composers who we, we take a big, big sort of concept to from the outset, rather than just giving them carte blanche in terms of their, their ideas. That's interesting. So you try to really commission something from someone with a very specific curatorial ID already before designed. Definitely, beforehand. definitely. So uh, most of our our major works now are these kind of evening length works that are that are single works that that occupy the entire event. But we do still commission single works from from individual composers. And I've got a, a one project on the go at the moment where I I've curated three composers together and really given there's a very specific brief. So each composer is essentially addressing the same idea, but from their own unique perspective. And so now, you know, from a curatorial perspective, it's not about, um, you, know, not, you know, good pieces of music that contrast each other. It's actually about three works or more that, that deepen one unified investigation of an idea. Um, and we've done this on a few occasions now when we do present sort of repertoire pieces. It's usually very tightly curated. Mm -hmm. And where do you see yourself going beyond this? Like, let's say in 10 to 15 years, where do you go kind of beyond these very conceptual uh, pieces or evening length, uh, you know, fully designed projects? Where, where's, what's the next level there? Look, I think there's a, a bunch of really interesting places to go. I think because of COVID, I've started to think a lot about space. So, um, and by that, I mean performance spaces. And so we're thinking, you know, climate change is, is obviously... Uh, an existential crisis that we're all facing at the moment. Living in Australia, it's particularly impactful to, to be traveling to Europe on tour and so on. Um, that's something we have to deal with. On the other hand, there's also COVID where we can't travel to Europe. And if we did, it would be very expensive and dangerous. So one of the thoughts I've had is, what about if we tour the venue, which seems like the worst thing to tour, but One of the recent works we made is a project called Polar Force where we built our own performance space. So we, we designed an inflatable structure that is, was also the space that the work happened in. And the next big work that we're working on at the moment 
is likely going to involve a cage. Um, we're not sure if it's going to be made out of fishing wire or bird netting. It's a little bit unclear. But both of these spaces, um, they're very light. Like the entire, you know, polar force, the, the structure, this inflatable structure, it weighs 56 kilos or actually pr- probably about closer to 50 kilos, the entire thing. But it fits an audience of 80 and the performers, even the lighting hangs off this inflatable and it takes one fan to inflate it. So it's actually quite realistic to tour the space and then we decide how we want to fill it with sound design, with lighting, with projection, even live performances, but just um, streamed. And so that's something as well. I mean, you know, we often forget as musicians that it's impossible to make a sound outside of an acoustic environment. And so, yes, as percussionists, we're thinking instrument, 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 what's my, what's my source going to be? But at the same time, the, the room is giving just as much feedback all the time. So maybe that's an avenue too, like really thinking architecturally about, you know, as sound, as sound makers, how do we activate spaces, but turn the space into a kind of an active player in the, mm-hmm. in the process of making work. So this sounds like a kind of uh, in-the-pocket type venue that you, you bring it in a bag and does it have actual acoustic response or how does that come Yeah, about? it does have. So this, this polar force structure um, is a... It's quite, the walls are quite thick. So it's almost like if you can imagine these huge um, tubes, interconnected tubes, they're about one and a half meters diameter. And so they're quite... It's quite, the walls are quite thick, full of like air that's slightly pressurized compared to outside. And you do get these kind of high frequency reflections. And the, the roof itself is domed. The shape is like a Nissan hut. And so you do get these reflections back into the center of the space. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't describe it as particularly inspiring as, a, as a, an acoustic, but it's definitely, it has a particular quality to it. Yeah, so Polar Force is a, is a fairly recent work of ours that we made in 2018. And um, I was approached by a sound artist based here in Melbourne who has been an artist in residence in Antarctica. And he said he was, he was heading to Antarctica making field recordings and asked whether I would want to work with him on creating a performance work. And I, my initial reaction was, sounds great. But what I'd like to do is I want to work with the same materials that you're recording. I want to work with air, ice, water. And um, so I don't want to, you know, I'm not, I don't want to be playing a a percussion instrument, essentially. Um, So he went to Antarctica and made hundreds of hours of pristine recordings. And when he returned, I embarked on a year-long residency at the RMIT University here in the Industrial Design Department. So I worked with about 30 young industrial designers to build instruments that could manipulate air, ice and water. And we went through all sorts of experiments at, at, you know, how how that might look, what it could be. And and I also worked with some other designers here in Melbourne. And we eventually built a series of instruments that look a bit like the kinds of things you'd find in a science lab, Um, which was also intentional. We wanted, you know, the thought was, I'm not going to be performing you know, um, a xylophone made out of ice on the Antarctic shelf. I'm going to be, if I'm in Antarctica, I'm probably doing scientific research. And if I'm there, you know, it's, it's, 
it's it's probably going to sound quite different. And you know, it just, just didn't make sense the idea of being uh, surrounded um, by field recordings and then somehow wanting to put this kind of concert hall music with that. So what we did was we built this inflatable structure that I mentioned earlier, which was a way of housing the performance, but also creating that kind of fantasy around, well, maybe this is a a polar base station. And inside the base station, scientific sound research is happening. So that somehow, you know, in the narrative, there was a kind of a plausible connection to what was going on. So the whole performance has this kind of theatrical um, poise to it where the two musicians, the live performers, look like we're, of course, we're trained percussionists, but we're performing as if we were doing sound research. And none of the instruments look traditional. They all have this very bespoke sort of um, design quality to them using, you know, aluminium and perspex and, and tubing and things of that nature. And so we designed this kind of multi-channel system with its own custom-made lighting and it's an hour-long performance work that uh, allows the audience 80 people at a time to come into this environment. We chill the space, so it's usually 18 degrees Celsius and people experience these phenomenal field recordings, you know, multi-channel with enhanced by these kinds of live iterations of the same kinds of things. 18 below zero or 18? 18 plus. Yeah, so it's it's yeah, that's just chill. slightly. <laughs> I'm in the Ouija. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's your summer. This is t-shirt weather. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, apparently, 18 degrees is the internal temperature. If you go to Antarctica, that's what they set the internal uh, climate to. Um, in- indoors, yeah. Yeah, I think today to really make a successful career in a creative practice within percussion, it's really important to have uh, a whole, a, a much wider skill set than just playing one's instrument well. Um, I mean, of course, one can be lucky and, and, and maybe there's a lot of freelance work that can come your way. But essentially, to really have the freedom to kind of move from project to project or to be able to lead projects of your own volition, then it's essential to be able to, you know, market your work, write funding applications, um, 
run more or less a small business, which in some instances might be an ensemble or an organization, but in other instances as for solo artists, maybe it's just their own, you know, budgets and um, website, et cetera, et cetera. So it's really important that those, those kinds of things are essential uh, really for, for having a successful career. And then beyond that, it seems just about impossible that, that um, one could survive these days without audio editing skills and, basic knowledge around video software and yeah and and good communication skills as well in terms of you know obviously a lot of emails have to get written no matter what you do mm-hmm. within our can you elaborate a little bit on what you mean by marketing skills what kind of what type of channels do you find relevant for for musicians i think these days you know a lot happens on social media and that of course has shifted over the last 10 to 15 years it's become the dominant platform now particularly for experimental music but um, I think there's still definitely a role to be played with conventional marketing and um, and publicity through radio, through um, some print media, online or zines, um, blogs and that kind of thing. So it's really important to be able to be across various avenues that you can get your work out to the world. And, you know, at least for Speak Percussion, of course, we've got our social media accounts, but we also have an e-news, we have the website. So there's a lot of kind of digital marketing that we do in-house and I have to feed into that with at, at the very least proofing what, what goes out. So um, it's, a, it, I must, must say, I sort of despise that side of it. I hate the marketing. I'm not actually on social media myself, um, but the organization is. But on the other hand, um, it's, it is essential. It's, an, it's, it's a necessary part of the kind of mechanism of being in the industry. So um, it has to happen. So going from there, can you just take us through a, um, a normal week at Speak Percussion headquarters? Yeah, so it, a normal week will probably have a range of different things in it. Lots of meetings, usually, with artists, with some of our staff. Um, it'll involve some creative work that might be it, it it really depends where we are because sometimes it could be full-time working on a project with nothing much else around it but on a typical week when there's no project being rehearsed or made it could involve some creative research uh, which is often done online it might involve a meeting with let, let's say a production manager tomorrow morning for example i've got a scoping meeting with a, a digital company who are looking at ways we can look at augmented reality and virtual reality stuff. So we're doing literally a three hour consultation. Then I have a, a meeting with an instrument designer, sound designer. We're looking at building a new instrument. And then in the evening I have a rehearsal on a new work that premieres on Thursday. So that's a fairly <laughs> typical kind of day. Um, Sounds like a full day. Yeah, should be busy. And what is, uh, how would you say Wednesday, um, Eugene, uh, practices alone ratio versus the kind of organizational time that you have to spend on the computer everything i do now is is uh within speak percussion so if i ever do my own you know if i'm ever practicing or if i'm ever preparing a project it's always from within the organization's um oh well that's not entirely true but almost entirely um i never practice for the sake of practicing ever anymore i used to um, but now it's really only for the project at hand. So if I've got a work coming up, I'll be preparing for that and developing the skills. Um, and I, cause it got to the point where I felt like I couldn't justify 45 minutes on the snare drum because I wasn't using those skills anymore. Or for example, for mallet keyboard 
technique or sight reading on on the vibraphone it's been so many years since i've needed to play that instrument that as much as i would enjoy that kind of daily ritual it doesn't um it doesn't actually it's not part of my job anymore right yeah that's super interesting and uh, um It takes me back to a dinner conversation we had a couple of years ago in in our house in Freiburg, where you said, um, which is by the way why I always find it so interesting and inspiring to talk to you that you 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 picture yourself maybe some years down the road just going into more pure art, uh, art production rather than being a musician and not having to take care of those those uh, crafts related skills that much anymore. Um, but it's still, it still it takes you also, also back to the beginning of the conversation where you said that the 14 year old and you understood that this is um, this is such a vast area you'll never kind of get to the goal but you can just keep going yeah. and discover new things out of that little the idea of discipline just keeps extending absolutely and I, so I think that you know um, at a certain point and I've been realizing this in in some recent works if you're composing directing and performing in a work at the same time inevitably some of those things are going to suffer because you can't be a great director if you're in the work. Um, and similarly, as a composer, when you're, when you're learning the notes and you, you don't have a full overview of the sound, there's something that, that, that suffers as well. And further to that, I think, you know, musicians or percussionists in particular, we're, we're not that different to dancers. The, the main difference is that we rely a little bit less on our bodies than dancers do basically entirely. Um, so percussionists, yeah, we can have, a, you know, our whole career can be on the stage, but we do have a peak, you know, a physical prime, which is probably late twenties. If we, if we speak about that, frankly, like the muscles aren't getting stronger, more flexible after that point. Um, yes, we're maturing as musicians, um, but our hearing's not getting better. Our muscles are not getting better. And so for me, it's a recognition that, um, yes, I could play till the end of my career, but maybe it's better if I move to a different role and have younger people do the playing. Um, and so it's a realization of that. It feels sort of sad to realize that. Um, it's the way I felt when I stopped playing the drum set and went to percussion purely. It felt like I was letting go of something that was part of my identity. But But now that I've overcome that, it's absolutely fine. I haven't looked back. So I'm sure there will come a time where I put down the sticks and say, I'm not performing anymore. Um, or at least I'm not performing regularly. It'll just be for rare special occasions. But um, as long as I'm being creative, I still feel that that outlet will still be, will still be there.